I think an open dialogue is a cornerstone for caring for any patient because I can know all of the studies that were done, but if I don't know how the patient is feeling and functioning, I can't really serve them well and, and give them this information in a way that will help them. That's Dr. Elizabeth Volkman, a rheumatologist and director of the University of California, Los Angeles Scleroderma Program, and the founder and co-director of the Connective Tissue Disease-Related Interstitial Lung Disease Program at the university. She is describing how open communication and collaboration are the essence of shared decision-making in caring for people living with pulmonary fibrosis. Welcome to Journeys Through Pulmonary Fibrosis, a podcast by Boehringer Ingelheim. I'm Louis, and I'll be joined by some extraordinary people living with this rare disease, as well as by some of those who care for them, to explore the importance of shared decision-making. Shared decision-making is a collaborative process through which healthcare providers and care partners support patients in decisions about their care. It puts patients at the centre of key decisions while ensuring they have access to all the important information to support them on their journeys. Let's begin the episode by learning about how shared decision-making means putting the patient's needs first and ensuring that they are empowered, as Dr Vanessa Smith a rheumatologist from the University of Ghent, Belgium, describes. This is of utmost importance that the patients are empowered concerning his or her disease. And it's equally important to respect the patient's wishes. Hence, it's always useful to ask the patient upfront, first time you meet the patient or in the first consultation, if the patient likes to be informed of all, even if there would ever be a point where the prognosis may become dismal. Dr. Volkman has learned to always refocus on the needs and concerns of her patients. You know, I'd ask them how they feel, but then I had kind of an agenda. I was like, okay, I need to check in about their side effects. I need to figure out if they're tolerating this medicine. And I had this whole list of things. Um, and sometimes the patient, you know, what they wanted to focus on might be different than what I wanted to focus on for that visit. And really the most important person here is the patient. Harry from the Netherlands who lives with familial pulmonary fibrosis, describes his experience and how he works with his care team to gain confidence in the advice given to him. In the end, it's always me that is deciding on what is going to happen, of course. But uh, I'm fully confident in what my uh, lung specialist thinks and the advice she gives me. Uh, and the same goes for the pulmonary uh, nurse. Sometimes I think one Perhaps this advice was not that good, or perhaps I would like to have a little bit more of information about the advice they give me. Then I just make a phone call. Dr. David Rudia Garcia, a psychologist with the pulmonary service of the University Hospital of La Princesa in Madrid, Spain, sees the mutual value for doctors in implementing a shared decision-making approach. I think it's very humanistic to treat as a person. We will discover a lot about our patients we will discover what they need. So, how does shared decision-making work in practice? And what can patients do to ensure it works for them? Harry appreciates the opportunity to ask his specialists questions and recognises the importance of preparation. You just ask her uh, certain questions and you prepare the meeting in advance, as far as possible, of course. Uh, I'm not a specialist, so my questions could like... Uh, 
which uh, seem to be a little bit ridiculous from time to time. But that's not the point. The most important point is you just pose that. I'm a curious type of person. Two times a year, I uh, sit with my uh, lung specialist uh, and have a talk, a chat uh, for about half an hour in which I uh, do ask her several questions. I prepare those questions. I think it's extremely important that one having the disease, a patient, should prepare himself if he goes into a dialogue with his lung specialists. Ron lives with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and reinforces the importance of education and asking questions. I think education of the disease is the most empowering things that a patient can do. So you, you can talk to your consultant, not on a level with them, but you know that you need to know that you understand the disease and you need to go to these appointments prepared with questions. Go with a set of questions and, as I've said before, don't be afraid to say, I don't understand. Can you explain that again? And that's really all I can say if you, to empower patients is to really, really understand the disease as much as you want to, but empower yourselves to say, well, I don't understand that. What does this mean? What does DLCO mean? What does this mean? What does FVC mean? Ask. And if you don't understand, ask and ask your GP. I was once told by healthcare professionals, if you don't ask, they won't tell you. So ask. Linda, who is from Australia and is living with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, believes that being prepared with questions is important. Being prepared, going into your doctors with the questions perhaps written out so that you don't forget, because quite often when you're in there, you'll get sidetracked. And when you walk out, you think, I was going to ask him about that. And you don't do it. So you go in with your questions written down. Uh, that will help to jog your memory and you can follow up so that then, you know, even be prepared to write down the answers. Dr. Rudia Garcia understands that patients' questions must be heard and that the sooner they are addressed, the better. We need to bring to the patients to say, hey, go home, list your questions. That is important for you. All the questions don't think it's a stupid thing. List everything that is important for you. And then you can come back and you, I will answer. I will, I will answer these questions. I think it's important to, to, to have this, the, this opportunity. Uh, um, it's very relieving to have the opportunity to, uh, to ask for the patients. And I think it's important for the professionals also to know these questions because these questions sooner or later will appear. Dr. Leticia Kawano Dorado a pulmonologist at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, believes in creating opportunities for open dialogue and ensuring that patients are free to ask anything they wish. An open dialogue is a fundamental aspect of patient-healthcare provider relationship. As verbal communication is the cornerstone of our interaction with people. By being open, I mean to create an unobstructed channel with the patient whereby information and care can flow both ways. So in order to create the conditions to have an open dialogue with my patients, I try first to build trust. 
so that they can feel they can open up to me, bring up issues that are sensitive, and we can, from there, move on together in the pathway of care. Dr. Smith believes in openness, but accepts that patients' needs may differ. I always try to be frank and open, but as I said in the beginning, in the first consultation, when I get to know a patient, I always ask what a patient wants to know at the baseline visit, but also during the upcoming visits, because I think it's important that the patient tells us if he or she wants to know what they are having. And if they don't want to know, we should also respect. But I always try to uh, make a deal with the patients that I can always tell them everything how it is. Najana lives in the Netherlands and was diagnosed with scleroderma-associated interstitial lung disease at a young age. She describes how going into the shared decision-making process with a tangible goal led to some significant success. I was at a vacation with my husband um, in, a, in a country in the West, and I saw running kids. And I cried really hard because I remembered myself as a young kid running as an athletic and athlete. And then I got to the physiotherapist and I told him about the, the situation. And I said, is it possible to run 30 seconds? And he looked at me and he said, we are going to do that. And that kind of human connection and empowerment, that is awesome. So we did train. And I got back to the beach with my husband, and I did run my 30 seconds. Linda describes how her care was also adjusted to meet her needs. It's been particularly good for me with my endocrinologist. Um, I also have diabetes and hypothyroidism. So to have him understand my point of view in relation to my IPF uh, he wanted to change a medication and I knew that wasn't going to make me feel good. And my response to him was, my life is going to be shorter anyway. I want to live it the best I can by feeling the best I can. So I'd rather stay with what I'm doing. And he said, okay, that's fine. And that's exactly what he wrote to my GP. <laughs> Harry describes the importance of being his own advocate and how that made a difference with his lung specialist. So at a certain moment, I asked my um, lung specialist, could you just um, find out uh, via a blood test whether the possibilities that something like cancer is developing are there or whether they are not there? Uh, well, that's a rather costly uh, type of uh, research, uh, but she did it. She just followed my question. And I find that also great because in the Netherlands, it's not that easy to convince your specialists to do a certain thing. But in this case, uh, she just uh, followed my uh, question and, and she found it a very good idea. So I'm, in short, I'm listened to. That's what I feel. But it very much depends on the questions you pose and whether you are capable of explaining to them exactly what happens and what you feel. So your preparation is extremely important. What else can healthcare providers do to help to empower their patients to participate in shared decision-making? First, let's hear from Dr. Smith. Medical terminology can make it difficult to communicate and confusing for those receiving care 
In fact, for optimal patient outcomes, information for patients needs to be available at the right time and personalized for each patient's specific condition. Dr. Volkman also emphasizes the importance of demystifying medical jargon. Medical terminology can be very confusing, um, even for healthcare providers and people that have knowledge if it's not their area of expertise. Um, so when I explain things to patients, I try to do it in a way or in a language that they'll understand. And I do ask them a lot of times during the visit um, if they have questions. Similarly, Dr. Kawano Dorado recognizes the need for communicating in non-technical language in order to empower her patients. For example, using plain language, avoiding jargons, is another important element to assure that the patient understands their condition, understands the proposed treatment plan, next steps, allowing the patient to assume an active role in their care. Another interesting action that can be taken, and I frequently use it, is to make pauses during chunks of information provided asking the patient if they have so far understood what is being said and if there are any doubts. Dr. Volkman describes a technique to ensure that patients absorb information in what can sometimes be challenging situations. There is this technique called the repeat back technique, and this is something where you can ask patients to kind of repeat back in their own words what the plan is. And this can be helpful because sometimes you realize, oh, I didn't really say that so clearly to the patient. Dr. Smith also uses this technique. I use in my daily practice the repeat back technique. I always ask my patients to tell me what they are going to communicate to their loved ones about what has been discussed in the consultation. And if the patient can repeat in their own words what I've said, then I know that they have been informed decently. Dr. Kawano Dorado likes to leave her patients with a written account of her advice, which they are able to consult at their own convenience. I myself prefer to give patients my advice orally during the appointment and then in written form so that the patient can revisit it at home if needed. I know that a lot of tension sometimes goes in these appointments and because of anxiety, sometimes patients do not fixate the content well. So that's why I usually give the plan, the management plan in written form. Irrespective of the specific technique used, the importance here is to make sure that the patient fully understood their care management plan and it's a shared decision-making process. Shared decision-making can extend beyond patients and doctors to include partners, family and friends. Let's learn why this matters. First, Maxine, who is married to Ron, describes how decisions about her husband can have a wider impact and how making decisions together can really help shape the path forward. Shared decision-making, I believe, and I know it's not for everyone, is very important because the decisions that are made about what happens to Ron are decisions that affect my life. I mean, you know, when you're going along this pathway, if there's things that need to be done, you need to understand it to be able to cope with it. So if you're not part of that decision making and you don't know how it's going to impact them, one, you can't support them. 
Two, you don't know how to best cope with it yourself because you've got no idea what's happening and you don't know where to reach out for help. And the more information is more control, is more being able to help in the best way and keeping your lives on track. Dr Smith describes how useful it can be to have a care partner join consultations. For difficult talks or difficult consultations, I always ask to bring a close one along to the consultation. Harry says that bringing a loved one or care partner can help him get the most out of his appointments. If you don't trust yourself because you might not hear everything he or she is telling you, just take your wife with you or your daughter or your son because there are uh, two do hear more than one uh, and you are in a special condition, you are in a special atmosphere, you are the one going to hear that you do have a disease which is a very serious disease. So that might have an influence on your capability of taking up information. So take one uh, with you and put your questions on a piece of paper. Just with a pencil, uh, uh, you go into uh, the room and make notes as well. Harry's wife has stepped forward to take an active role in managing his illness. On the request of my wife, she asked me whether she could come with me to uh, uh, the lung specialist. And I uh, uh, agreed to it because I thought, well, uh, she uh, knows about uh, the disease. She knows what I'm going through. She knows what I'm using. Uh, perhaps she could be of, of it. No to see it in a very practical way. She could be of use in that respect, that she knows also, that she hears also uh, what uh, the um, lung specialist is saying. Um, so it worked very well, you know. Uh, it's, uh, she posed questions as well at a certain moment. And I was glad because it also gives you a possibility just during that conversation to sit back a little bit and to reflect again on your list of questions. Maxine describes how she can help Ron in his interactions with the medical team. So we both know how we both feel about it. I have an idea of how he wants things to go for his future. And I'm prepared to support whatever he wants because it's, it's his life, as long as it's something I can cope with. But ultimately, if he's not prepared to say something in a consultation, I will say, oh, Ron didn't you want to mention so-and-so? And then he'll feel empowered to do it. Because one, he could have forgotten. Two, he's trying to take in so much things that um, he may just not want to ask a specific question. But if somebody says, oh, don't you want to? Then he's more likely to ask the question. And then he comes out and says, thank you for reminding me that. I really wanted to know. I really wanted that and I'd forgotten. So I think it's about empowering them is supporting them. And you go in there as a team. And that is what you must remember. You're a team. It's not just the patient. You're both living this disease in different ways. Dr. Rudia Garcia shares his thoughts on working with caregivers. Another thing I used to do is small groups with caregivers because it's important to share. And they discover first, they normalize a lot of reactions. Sometimes a lot of caregivers, they feel angry with their with the life because they think eh, it's horrible, uh, the life is treating me in a bad way. 
And they, it's good to, to talk with another people that they are in the same situation. They understand a lot. So we need to create this space. It's very nice for the caregivers because they need also to have this kind of support. Let's close this episode with some thoughts from Dr. Smith, who reiterates that even though decision-making can be shared and collaborative, it is always the patient who has the final say. I try to have a open and horizontal relationship with my patients. I inform them from a scientific medical doctor point of view and give them the pros and cons of each alternative. And then I let them decide on every option they have. And if they, they decide even not to follow a medical doctor advice, then I also respect that. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Journeys Through Pulmonary Fibrosis podcast. Our next and final episode will focus on the important topic of romantic and intimate relationships and family and friends. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. There, you will also find previous episodes you might have missed. If you have any comments or questions, please reach out to hello at boeringer-ingelheim.com.